It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 186. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. So, Gary, do I sound a little different? Uh, yeah, a little. Is it uh, the new tech there? Or... Well, I've been, I've been playing with microphones. Uh -huh. um, I have, uh, for all of my videos and, and for these uh, podcasts, I've been using my uh, my trusty AT2020 Plus, mm -hmm. um, you know, highly recommended by um, our mutual friend, David Lawrence, who does a lot of audio work. And um, I just decided, you know, I've got this, the, I've got a, what I've got is a Rode Wireless Go. And it's a, um, a wireless microphone that you know the the microphone part of course clips onto well whatever in my case i've got it clipped onto my shirt and then it's got a small receiver that's actually small enough that it's designed to fit in the uh, in the hot shoe of a camera so that it just sort of sits with your camera and you can plug it into the camera for the audio if you're doing that right now i've got it hanging off the front of my desktop pc plugged into the audio in for that but um it's uh i just wanted to see if this would work and work well well enough for this um it's nice not to have a, a microphone in my face and I, if it does work i may end up doing it a little bit more often for some of my videos so i was kind of curious yeah it's always uh good to experiment i think with new mics i'm still using my trusty old 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 plantronics headset so i have to say that your audio quality improved dramatically in the last 30 seconds it did because I remembered that it, it, the microphone was above my head and I need to drop it below my chin. Um, <laughs> it, uh, but yeah, I use this Plantronics microphone and I use it for this. And I, I used it, I didn't use it on my last course, but I've used it on many of my other courses because I'm only recording audio. I'm not recording video of myself as I do tutorials. So wearing a headset is fine. Um, just the weird thing about this headset, it is pre-2000 technology. Wow. Uh, it is, I believe I bought it in 1998 or 1999 as as a USB headset when USB was brand new. Matter of fact, you know, the, the idea that you can name a USB device, like in the hardware, it could have a name assigned to it, wasn't even there yet because every time I connect this, it says unknown USB audio device. <laughs> And of course, if I, if I were to buy a $5 USB mic now, it would say like, you know, whatever tech, you know, yes. super audio microphone or whatever, you know, so this that old that they didn't even have like, oh, yeah, we can do a name in the hardware there. But it's just interesting because it's just I, I like the sound of this mic. And even my attempts to buy new Plantronics headsets have not been able to replicate the sound that I've got here. And then, of course, I have much better microphones like attached to my camera. My Max, my studio display has fantastic microphone array in it, which I used for my last course, and uh, and I have the same you know uh, 2020 that you were just talking about. All of those have the problem that if I decide to turn my head away, they don't <laughs> do right. very well. But, right. but and normally that's not a problem because I'm looking at my screen as I'm talking, except for this podcast right. where I do sometimes tend to lean back in my chair as Take we are your feet discussing up. things. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So. Microphone yeah. tech. Yep, yep. Fun stuff to play with. Mm -hmm. So um, last week, I mentioned uh, one of my articles, Why Do People Create Free Software? Mm -hmm. 
And I thought it would be interesting. I think actually you thought it would be interesting to uh, to delve into that with uh, with yeah. one of our episodes. And this seems like a good week to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is an interesting conundrum. Um, it's definitely uh, not always obvious, but um, you know, I'll let you. I mean, I've written my article. I know what I wrote. But let's. Uh, what's your take on it all? Well, you know, I, I do occasionally get people asking, and it's come up a lot recently because I have my own piece of software out there that happens to be free. But I have had games in the past, many games, uh, whether website games or mobile apps that are free as well. So occasionally I'm asked about uh, why is it free? What's the catch? Right. Um, and occasionally I'm asked also about, you know, when I recommend software, and I'll say, oh, there's this app out there you can get, it, and it's free. And then people wonder why. Why is it? How could it possibly be free? What's the what's the deal here with that? Um, and there are a variety of different reasons that software in particular can be free. Of course, the basis of software being free is that it's a completely digital product, meaning right. that it doesn't really cost anything to actually duplicate the bits. Right. So unlike, say, if you produced a, like a physical product like water bottles, it would be hard to make those completely free because the materials actually cost something. Um, but software can be different and also media as well, like music and, and all of that. It doesn't actually cost anything. There's no fixed cost to actually duplicating and creating more of the product. But there of course is a cost to actually creating software. And that is why most in most cases you have to pay for it or pay a subscription or pay a one-time fee or, or whatever for software. However, it's not the case um, in some pieces of software. And there are a lot of reasons like, uh, one reason, uh, you know, that's fairly typical is that one piece of software is free from the developer, and they have other versions of that software uh, that cost. In other words, like a light version mm-hmm. and a pro version. And the hope there is, well, the light version is free, and maybe you'll like it enough that you'll get the pro version to get extra features. And that's a fairly typical thing. And if the light version works for you and it's all you need, then you're lucky. You don't have to pay anything for it. Of course, you're also lucky if probably the pro version does some stuff that's worthwhile you paying a few bucks for. Um, the other one of the other differences that I often see with those that kind that model specifically mm-hmm. is that the free version typically does not come with any support or comes with very, very yeah. limited support. Whereas with the pro version, um, then you get access to something something more it varies depending on the company that's doing it but but you typically end up getting um, a little bit more hope of help when you run into trouble right exactly because it is hard you know if you put a as a developer if you put a free version and a paid version out there there might be several levels of magnitude between the quantities you might have a hundred thousand people that download the free version of your app and only a thousand people that pay for the pro version which might be fine Except if those, you know, hundred thousand people all want support, and right. they're not paying anything for it, so it's kind of a fairness thing, and it's kind of seen as like, well, yeah, if you're getting free software, don't expect to get any or at least the same level of support as the the paid version. Um, another reason might be simply to promote other things. Uh, this is fairly common uh, in mobile games, for instance, where you may have a a game company that has a whole portfolio of games, you know, maybe 10, 20 different games. And some of those are free. And some of those, usually the the more involved ones um, are paid. And the free ones are kind of there to basically, you know, promote the paid ones. So they might be 
free, but there might be little, ad, you know, ads. They're not really ads because it's just self-promotion, really, which is different than advertising. Nobody's paying for it. So, you know, self-promotion for the other game, um, that's a fairly common thing. I even have seen companies do it without that at all because a lot of times app store algorithms will reward a developer uh, based on download. So having one game that is free and tons of people download it, and then they launch a new game, that game launch goes a lot better because it's a known developer on the App Store platform that has a lot of downloads and a lot of reviews and so on, as opposed to if they just came out with the game and said it's 10 bucks and it just exists in its own vacuum, you know? Right. Um, so there's there are a lot of reasons to have some free games uh, next to, and some free apps next to some paid ones by the same company. Uh, another thing that's done, kind of the same idea, is the idea of, okay, if you're a small company, like myself, I've tried this a few times, uh, you don't really have any marketing budget, nobody really knows who you are. So in order for your game to be seen by anybody at all, you kind of got to make it free. Like if you charge for it, it's dead. So you make it free. And the idea is maybe it'll be a hit. And then version two, which has a big audience anticipating it, can then cost something. A lot of big early app store hits for mobile games were done this way. The really? first one was free. It seems risky because you're setting an expectation of free. Yeah, well, it... It is, I don't know. I don't know if it's that risky. You know, you come out with, you know, your game, whatever, and it's free and people play it. And then you start teasing, for, you know, this game too. It's coming out this fall and it's going to be big. And it's going to have all these features people have been asking for. And it's going to have levels and all this stuff. And people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you just tell everybody, oh, it's going to be two ninety nine or nine ninety nine or whatever. Right. And, you know, and you've just built up anticipation and you've built a brand. You know, if you you built a brand around that first free game, um, so people want more of the kind of the same thing. So that's another reason why you might find a free app. Um, the uh, oh, another one is, of course, this is rarer, but the whole pay as you want thing. So you've got, uh, you know, the game, the game or the app is free, but. Uh, there is a way to support the developer if you if you like. You don't have to, but if you like, this is kind of where my clip tools falls in, right? It's totally free. There are no ads. It's not promoting any other apps or anything like that. You know, it does mention MacMost, so there's a little bit of self promotion in there. But I have my Patreon, just like with MacMost. So mm -hmm. the idea is, if somebody really likes it and wants to support the app, there is a way for them to do it. But otherwise, the app is is free. It's interesting because I use that model on uh, a couple of my non-tech newsletters, right? Um, yeah. You know, the newsletter, 100% of the content, you know, free if you want it, no, pro mm -hmm. no problem, just, you know, sign up and it's not a big deal. Um, but I've had a couple of requests um, when I started doing that early on and that I just set up a little something in, okay, well, you know what, if you want to support all, not all news is bad, well, come on over to askleo.com and I've got something in my store. So you can throw mm. some money, you can throw some money at me. Yeah. Um, but that's really all it is, right? It doesn't gate any features or functionality. It just is a way for people to, uh, to reward uh, me, I suppose, but the publisher or the creator of whatever it is they're doing. Yeah. Um, now, a lot of these free things also have a another thing attached to them, which is they're open source. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you, have, you hear free and open source, and sometimes it's just free, sometimes it's open source. And the idea of open source, of course, is all the code is online, and people can 
you know, down, you can download the code yourself and all. And a, a reason an app may be free is because there's a certain benefit to having something open source. Like as an example, a big company that, uh, you know, does various things may need a piece of software that does something that doesn't exist. So they want to develop it on their own, but developing a full fledged app that's maintained and all of that is expensive. So instead they go halfway and they say, let's develop a basic app that does what we need, but we'll open source it, right? So if anybody else needs the same thing, they have access to it and they can also contribute to the tool. So a big company or a small company maybe may kick off an open source tool because they need that tool. Mm -hmm. Other companies or individuals that also like the idea of that tool, they then contribute to it. And the original company that invested the money and probably more like time of a developer in creating this tool gets what they wanted, which is the tool exists now. And other people who contribute also get what they wanted, which is the tool exists now. And you just end up with this open source tool that's that happens to be free, but the creators are still benefiting from the tool. I mean, the alternative is to create an in-house tool that nobody else knows about, nobody else can use. But those, you know, you, if you want to expand that tool, you have to do it. Whereas if it's open source, you may find that somebody else has already expanded it for you or it gets, fixed it or updated it, you know? It gets weird because um, in reality, open source is completely separate from whether or not something is free. Yes. Um, and indeed, there are open source licenses. This is particularly um, true if your company decides not to start something from scratch, but to actually build on top of an existing open source project. Um, then the license may um, uh, force that company to make that product available for free. Uh, you know, no matter how much they've enhanced it, the, the underlying stuff has to be free, Good but, but there are then ways for that company to still leverage that product uh, to generate revenue in other ways. A great example, um, I'm, I'm not going to name company names because honestly, I'm not sure if that's the model the company is using, but imagine um, a company that takes a, um, uh, a version of Linux, whatever, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, modifies the heck out of it, does some neat things to it that makes it a very unique uh, Linux distribution for their customer base. They're probably required to give that Linux away for free because it's got all of this, you know, um, licensed code underneath. However, um, they can then start doing things like charging for support. They can have support contracts that then could be sometimes a significant revenue generator for that company. But the underlying software that they're then distributing, rema distributing uh, remains free. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of different ways that open source kind of plays into it. And mm -hmm. the end result being you sitting at home gets a free piece of software. Right. Uh, another example is that sometimes these open source you know, pieces of software are out there and they're actually not being used to create anything free. It's just a tool that various different individuals and companies need. So all this open, this open source project kind of comes together. And then somebody comes along and says, oh, that's neat. But nobody has actually made you know, taken that and kind of compiled it and put a nice interface on it and put it in, you know, a Windows App Store or a Mac App Store. Right. So they do it. The other you know, part of it too for open source is that there's not a requirement that open source be free. What has suddenly dawned on me is that a, a product like a Bitwarden, uh, yeah. which has both a free and a paid version, the software is open source. Anybody can play with it. Um, but that 
doesn't stop Bitwarden from having created that software themselves. They set the terms so they can, in fact, sell uh, what is ultimately open source software. Yeah. A lot of different ways it could go. Um, yep. And then, of course, we've got, you know, somebody could just be doing, uh, you know, free software to just as a project to gain experience. Mm -hmm. You know, they're OK, I want to I, I to get a job in coding. Sometimes you have to show your work, show that you've done something. And right. a great way to do that is to is to take something you're passionate about, build an app. And certainly if you could show up to a job interview with a resume that says, I built this app that you may have heard of. I mean, that's a huge boost. And you could put yourself ahead of people that, you know, have more experience in education than you because you've actually created something that can be downloaded in an app store. So people will use it as kind of a career boost um, to, you know, uh, I, it's an easy, it, it's an easy way to do that. That doesn't rely on somebody else because, you know, if you want to get experience, you need a job. And if you, to get a job, you need experience. It's like, yeah. ah, how do you do it? it but you don't need any of that to do an open source free app. Exactly. It's a question that I've gotten multiple times over the years is, you know, how do I get experience if nobody will hire me? Um, and I've always said, just start coding, start write software, make it a hobby, make it a volunteer effort, um, you know, do whatever. Um, and doing this, right, making uh, something that is public, um, open source optionally. Uh, it doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily have to be, but that's helpful in some ways. Certainly, if you're if you're targeting um, actually getting a job, that gives the potential employer an opportunity to actually see your work. But um, um, it's a great way to literally get experience, as you say, not being reliant on anybody else. Right. I I want to back when I did actually have some employees. Um, I mostly hired uh, computer science people as coders, and um, and I was creating web-based games. One exception to that was when somebody who was not didn't have a computer science background, but they came in with a here are some games that web-based games I've created. Here's where they are. You can go and play them. Right. And I was able to look and I said, Oh, okay, you made these, you put them out there. This is kind of what we do. You're hired. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So that's a good example. Um, you had some uh, other ones here, like at free apps that are not really free. Yeah, so the scenario that I'm thinking of is is I I I admit I caved and I installed Candy Crush um, mm -hmm. some yeah. months some months ago, and uh, when you play it, you know, you do the Candy Crush thing for a while, but eventually they start offering you things, um, you know, power ups, um, level ups, whatever you want to call them, things that presumably would help you progress further in the game. I don't know if they actually have it truly gated where there's no way to get beyond a certain point if you don't take advantage of these power-ups. But the bottom line is the game has in-app purchases. So the game itself is free, and I've never paid a dollar for this game or anything in it. But if I wanted to, if I wanted to make more progress or do whatever, um, then yeah, I could spend a few bucks here and there uh, buy something that would get me a little further, a little, and um, you know, a little further in the game. It's not related. It's not, you know, solely the the uh, arena of games that fall into this category. Uh, lots of different mobile apps can have in-app purchases, um, and yeah, that is one way that you know things that are free 
Um, that's one reason often, often why they're free is not so much because they offer so much wonderful functionality in their free version, but they once again get you in, get you used to, get you understanding what the tool is all about, and then offer you upgrades for some kind of um, uh, some kind of purchase. Right. One of the other items that um, uh, I had on my list, I'll just call it altruism. Uh, you know, sometimes. Uh, mm -hmm. People, especially people that have been in the industry for a while, that are successful, uh, that perhaps are uh, you know, at a point where they don't necessarily need to be making money, um, they just do it because they want to give back. They enjoy doing what they're doing, and they offer what they do to the community, where the community can be some random definition. It could be the world. Uh, in general purpose utilities, it could be um, a class of individuals, it could be uh, nonprofit, it could be anything. <clears throat> but there's a lot of a lot of different scenarios where uh, successful uh, software engineers and others are creating this stuff for um, because they're trying to give back. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh. One of the the ones that surprised me, I, I don't think it's on my list in my article, and I may have to go back and add it. Um, but it is something that we've talked about a lot over the last few years when it comes to social media. And it's true for more than just social media. Sometimes you are the product. Uh, by that, I mean, uh, we, you know, we've all talked a lot about how uh, Facebook, uh, social media apps, um, Google, uh, other, other um, uh, large systems and service providers, they provide a bunch of stuff for free, but free isn't always free. They're collecting data about what it is you do, how you use their service um, in various forms. And then they're turning around and reselling that information to others for various purposes. So in a sense, it's free to you, but it's because you're the product and uh, they're still making money on what it is they are doing with the data that they've collected um, or the ads that they're showing you, which is of course the other, you know, the, the more obvious case in, in those, in those scenarios. Interesting. So um, let's ask our uh, third co-host uh, if there are any other reasons we haven't mentioned. And this is what chat GPT says. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, in addition to a list of, of the things we've already mentioned, uh -huh. There are some things that we didn't mention. Okay. Uh, okay. Educational or nonprofit use. Some software is made available for free to educational institutions or nonprofit organizations as a way of supporting their mission goals. I Good. claim that's my altruism, my altruism item. You think so? Okay. I but I mean, yep. yeah, but if they have like, a, I, I see it as like if a university or a department of university says, our, we have this money that comes in and our goals are to do this. And if one of those goals is achieved by developing a piece of software, well, yeah, I guess it's altruism, but at an institutional level. Right. Um, let's see. Uh, market share. Kind of related to what I was talking about, some of those techniques early. Yep. Yep. Com companies uh, offer a free version to gain market share. Yep. Uh, here's one. Uh, software has entered the public domain. So that goes back to some old things, like some old games where the copyright has expired or allowed to expire? I thought copyright took a really, really long time to expire. As there are in... exceptions though. 
Yeah, there are exceptions I mean, you can certainly that. place things into the public domain, but that's different. That's a decision. I think a band, well, I think there is a whole thing, uh, there's a whole section of copyright law that has to do with things being abandoned, which would happen more often with software than with traditional forms yes. of media. Like a book, it's like this person wrote it. They're right. all, they have heirs, whatever the copyrights, but when a company goes under and doesn't have any heirs and they wrote a piece of software, uh, somebody else can go in. I think it was called Orphan Orphan Works. Somebody else can go in and say, claim this is an orphaned work. Nobody owns this anymore. Thus, the copyright doesn't apply. Interesting. And I think some of that has happened with old computer games. Interesting. They're now free. Um, let's see. Philanthropy, that's, that's altruism, right? Uh, and uh, the last one here that came up with is beta testing. That was, I don't know how I missed that one. Yeah, that's a good one too, yep. Whether you officially call it beta testing or not, sometimes you come out and you say, it's done, there's no beta test, it's finished. Yeah, but you're, what you're really doing is beta testing. Right, uh, right. Market, some, market testing. Sometimes it's actually very clear they do call it beta and there's an explicit expectation that right. once the beta period is over, it will go to be a paid product. But nonetheless, you're right. That's one that we both overlooked. Anyway, thanks, one was, Chad, one GPT. Yes, really. Um, we're going to have to give it a voice and give it an intro. <laughs> um, the the other one that there's a couple of others that are on on my article, you know, the list of my article uh, that are of less, um, I just call it less positive purposes. Sometimes it's a scam, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. the software is free because you are trying to be manipulated into doing something you don't want to do. Uh, free downloads, free scanners. Uh, sometimes they install malware. Sometimes they, um, uh, you know, will ins will uh, install a scanner that will scan for free. But if you actually want the tool to take action based on the results of its scan, then mm. you need to pay, yeah. right? Um, and then, of course, the other scenario is, yeah, it's not free at all. If it says it's free, it's lying. And that's uh, the the best example there is once again the uh, the, the scanner option where. Uh, you know, you you download it, but as soon as you do something, um, it start you know anything at all, uh, it starts asking you for money. It wasn't really free to begin with. I consider that um, in a lot of cases it's malware. In a lot of cases, the best way to classify that is as bait. The fact that they're marketing or pushing it as free software is really trying to bait you into so installing switch, something yeah. that you that you don't want. Either bait and switch, right? The bait, you know, like I said, downloading the scanner. Um, but you have to pay for the results, or uh, just pure bait, right? They're trying to hook you. What you're trying, to, what they're trying to do, is actually install malware on your machine. So if you fall for the free tag, um, yeah. that's exactly what ends up happening. Good so, point. Yeah, lots and lots of reasons for sure, and uh, especially with these last two, it does point to the uh, um, to the to the fact that regardless, uh, you can't let your guard down. Uh, mm -hmm. Just, you know, there there are some very, very valid uh, reasons for software to be free and some very, very powerful and popular tools um, that are free. Mm -hmm. And um, on the other side of the spectrum, you know, there's some really dangerous stuff out there that comes out as free as well. I think a lot of the, you know, it, it's not software in the traditional sense, but a lot of the Google services mm -hmm. that are out there fall under kind of the advertising thing, but sometimes not directly. I've heard people from Google say basically that Google is so big as far as the internet's concerned mm -hmm. that the amount of money they make in advertising is directly related to how much people use the internet. So 
it pays for them to come up with more things that people could do on the internet, even if there's not a direct line between the thing that they made and an ad being seen. Interesting. So, so the, the side effect, it's, stuff. it's the fact that we're using the internet more because of whatever yeah. they've given us truly Wait. for free. And as a side effect, we're also using some other things that generate them revenue. Right. And probably the biggest example of a Google tool that they've developed based on that, as far as I know, is Android. The whole okay. operating system yep. it was basically just like, let's get more people online doing things and oh hey they're online what do you know they're going to see google ads yeah they're in the google ecosystem yep yep that's yep. so, very true so, yeah which is kind of funny since you and i are both sitting here staring at a google doc which has our notes of course yeah there you go a free <laughs> a free service from google yeah yeah there's no ads here no nothing it's just you know document it's it's actually <laughs> a very cool tool but you and i are both you know knee deep oh heck we're neck deep in the in the yeah. google ecosystem as we sure. do all this stuff Mm -hmm. So right. there was a um, a story that I've heard of that I was actually going to um, talk about uh, to see if there was an Android equivalent, but it's been making the headlines lately. And I see you've got it noted here. You've got it. The, you've got it tagged as the watch and grab iPhone theft, which is really kind of scary from what I've heard. Yeah. So this got a lot of attention because I, I think was it the Wall Street Journal that first reported it? Wired also picked it up. I think there's some relationship. There. Either Wall Street Journal or or New York Times, but yeah, yeah. either way, yes, yes. They picked it up. Basically, a story written about a security flaw in the whole kind of Apple ecosystem having to do with iPhones. That's not. It's not what you think. It's actually something that's been around forever, and it's just a technique maybe that. I guess a few thieves might be getting desperate enough to actually try this kind of thing because it's basically somebody stealing your iPhone, like physically stealing your iPhone. But before they steal your iPhone, they observe you, hoping mm -hmm. to catch a glimpse of you entering in your passcode with the idea being that the iPhone is far more valuable to them if they know your passcode. So you're in a crowded bar, somebody who wants to pull this off watches you, probably watches mm -hmm. several people in the bar. If mm -hmm. they could see you enter in your passcode, perhaps maybe catch you on video doing it so they can mm -hmm. now know your passcode. Then they go and they target you and grab your iPhone, grab and run, you know. And now they've got an iPhone and your code, which is a bad combination because if somebody has your code, there's a lot that they could do to get into your phone change your accounts and 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 the real thing they're talking about here is being able to go in and log into your iCloud account and mm -hmm. change you know your Apple ID and change the password to it because you appear to be that person you've got the physical device and you've got the passcode so you've got two factors there Right. And you appear to be that person to Apple. So it's like, oh, you want to change your Apple ID password? Okay. Does um, Apple not require the previous password in order to change? It does, but it, I think you get around that because you have access to the phone. So it's going to change. It's Got going it. to set it up so that, oh, you know, here's your code. It's like, oh, well, you're logged into the phone. So you see the code. Anyway, it, it's it's not that hard to, I guess it's the kind of thing where, if you're off your guard, this could happen to you. But there are a lot of things you could do to prevent it from happening, one of which Apple has been pushing for years, which is using either Touch ID or Face ID instead. But see, what happens is a lot of people come out and they say, oh, I heard Face ID isn't secure. Somebody could get your phone, 
and then wave it in front of your face to unlock it or take a picture of you and unlock the phone with the picture um that kind of thing or fingerprints oh you hear these uh you know stories of people like lifting your fingerprints up and creating fake fingers and then you get you know all this stuff spy stuff and so people go and say oh i'm just going to be safe i'm only going to use passcodes so then you use a passcode in public and now somebody could see your passcode whereas if you used face id in public they grab your phone they no longer have your face plus face id requires it only gets to a certain level of access. Like if you could try to do something more complex, like change your passcode, for instance, yeah. it's going to say, oh, we need your old passcode. Or if you try to do something like use a payment system like Apple Pay, yeah. then it's going to say, oh, we need Face ID again, right? So right. even if somebody were to do the extreme thing of like steal your phone, gra grab you by the shoulders, have you unlock it with your face and run off, when they go to pay for something across the street, it's going to say, yeah, okay, face ID again. And it's like, oh, no, I can't do it because he's across the street. So it, it's a lot safer. The whole idea of uh, face ID and touch ID is basically a quick way to unlock your phone, but only to a certain level that's harder for somebody to steal from you. And then if uh, they don't have your passcode, which is your other way to get deeper into your phone, because you never used your passcode in public. So the best way to protect yourself against this thing is to not be afraid of face ID. Right. Use face ID in public situations and try to avoid using your passcode in public situations. Matter of fact, make it so rare that you need to use your passcode that when you do it, you're like, oh, hold on. I need to do something more secure. Look around, hold the phone close to you, all of that kind of thing. Instead right. of just constantly, like every three seconds, you grab your phone to check your Instagram or Snapchat or whatever, and you're in your passcode in. Somebody watching you can just see you enter your passcode in, you know, 100 times over dinner. Um, it should be zero times over dinner because you use Face ID to do things. Right. So that's the way. And then, of course, the other thing Face ID and Touch ID do is because you would use them most of the time. Now you're free to have a more complex passcode because a lot of people still use a four-digit passcode. Mm -hmm. which is super easy to observe and get. Uh, even a six-digit passcode, it's like that's harder. It's better than four digits. But if you have to use your passcode rarely because of face ID, then make it nine digits or switch to alphanumeric and actually use a real password. Mm -hmm. And those would be much harder for somebody to observe and get from you and probably just not worth it. They're, they're hoping for somebody with a quick, you know, one, two, three, four passcode or something that they right. could see and say, oh, okay. And then they grab it away. Um, so there are a lot of ways to protect yourself from that and make you an extremely unlikely victim of this. Of course, in perspective, it, it was one source, I think, in one city. I think it might have been New York City or or a similar you know, large city where they said over the last two years, they have, there have been a couple hundred cases of this, which I kind of doubt. I kind of, it feels a little inflated to me. Yeah. Um, keep in mind that there are more than 400 people a year in the United States hit by lightning. So, <laughs> so, you know, it, it's the kind of thing where it's like, okay, this is good. All the things I mentioned, using face ID more, having a longer passcode, being aware of your surroundings when you enter your passcode, they're all good things to do regardless of right. how much of a risk this is. Right. Definitely do them, right? But don't be scared because of this. This is not like an epidemic of like, you know, people running through bars, you know, grabbing phones left and right. Um, it's probably not going to happen to you. <laughs>
It probably won't. I mean, it's it's interesting. One of the things that I keep telling my audience is that you're just not that interesting. Yeah. Um, and by that, I mean, uh, you know, nobody's targeting you. Yeah. But if you happen to be someone interesting, there have been some changes to the digital landscape over the last few years. Um, you mentioned it in passing, but obviously observing someone entering their passcode is really not that difficult. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to be honest, I've done it. But um, uh, it's also not that difficult to uh, surreptitiously have your own phone recording mm -hmm. a video of someone entering their passcode and then being able to analyze that after ah, the fact. Yeah. So if you're, like I said, if you're someone who is likely to be targeted, then absolutely you want to be taking these extra steps. What yeah. I need to be looking into is just how all of this applies to Android, because it does sound right. like that single unlock on your Apple device mm -hmm. uh, really does open up a huge world. Whereas um, for better or worse, um, the Android ecosystem is a little bit more fragmented. Mm -hmm. So you end up, uh, yeah, you may be able to get into my phone if you if you happen to know my passcode. But um, uh, can you do the same level of damage? That I'm not sure. Oh, exactly. Um, because especially because remember, uh, iCloud now includes, uh, you know, a keychain with other passwords in it. Right. So Apple's success with iCloud is what really led to this, right? Five years ago, it would have been like, oh, they get into your iCloud, big deal. You know, right. it's not the, the end of everything. Whereas now it's like, well, Apple's been very successful at really making iCloud valuable. So getting into your iCloud account is a much bigger deal now. Whereas on Android, you're right, it's a lot more fragmented. You're much more likely to have a third party a password manager, third yep. party email system, all yep. this stuff. Um, that's why, it, while technically it's the same thing on Android, it's just it's just Apple's they're a victim of their own success here. Yes. Oh, another another point that I make, um, I, 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 my self promotion at the end of this, I, I'll, I'll point you to a video I did on this. But the uh, the other thing is to realize that this is a strange kind of crime because if the the goal is identity theft, most identity thefts are pulled off in relative safety. P the people stealing your identity aren't present they might not even be in the same country or the side right. of the world as you, right? And if somebody sitting at a basement on the other side of the world can do a but, you know, type at their computer there, hidden behind multiple different, you know, obscuring firewalls and such, and steal hundreds or thousands of identities, why would somebody put themselves at physical risk to actually be present, perform a physical act of actually taking your phone from you? Uh, and not just risk getting hurt, but also risk getting physically caught. So mm -hmm. it seems to be the, be the kind of thing where this can't grow very much. Yeah, there's going to always be some desperate individuals that might try something like this, right? I was thinking of kids stealing their parents' phones. But well, yeah. maybe, yeah. But, <laughs> but yeah, you know, there, there's always going to be a few people that will try every little exploit like this. Of but course. it's not the kind of thing where sometimes where they're digital exploits or over the internet exploits where it's like, oh, this could grow to huge numbers, right? This is the kind of thing where I don't imagine suddenly there being a huge number of people actually putting themselves like you know right. trying to commit a physical crime where there's a huge amount of risk involved so you know but and plus apple's probably going to add a whole bunch of new security stuff just because this was published and got so much attention in major yes. uh, news sources so apple tends to go and say oh 
all right, fine, we'll do this. And then people are going to complain that it's easier to log into your Android phone than it is your <laughs> Apple phone because we've done this because you kind of pushed us into doing it. But you know what they'll probably end up doing is there's a variety of different uh, – they could put some options in there, which don't actually change anything, but give them the ability to say, hey, if you are worried about that, there's a switch now right. where in order to go here, you have to enter in another passcode or in order to – you know, do this level of something, then there's a second factor, but that it can't be your iPhone or, or this has to be an hour delay. You want to change your uh, iCloud password with, from your iPhone when you're not near another device, there's an, a 60 minutes. I don't know. There could be all sorts of things you could switch on that Apple could say there, if you want that level of security, there are the switches for you. And if yeah, you're it, not concerned, you can continue using things as is. It reminds me of um, settings in one password that I'm using these days where um, it forces a reauth reauthorization um, yeah. after a certain amount of time yeah. and you get to choose the amount of time, right? And, yeah. you know, so it's on my phone, it's like five minutes uh, on my desktop. It's the maximum, which I think is eight hours. Um, and that's fine. Uh, what uh, it's funny because one of the things that one of the Habits that I changed a couple of years ago is for whatever reason, I don't even remember the details. Uh, I was for some reason spooked by fingerprint ID and face ID. So mm -hmm. I continued to use my passcode. Um, I've switched my phone now. It's all about um, fingerprint ID. It's convenient. Yeah. It works. Um, and uh, the only time you're actually required to use the passcode is uh, after a reboot. Um, for whatever reason, uh, you need to you need to enter the passcode there. But bottom line is, it's it's neat. Besides being, uh, you know, uh, protecting you from the situations that you've just described, it's also darn convenient. It really is. Uh, be it Face ID or a fingerprint, it's just so much easier to just put your finger there or to look at the phone a certain way, and poof, you're in. Thanks now, so I will say that there is one technicality that um, I would hope doesn't apply to anyone listening to this podcast. Mm -hmm. And that is simply this. It's the difference between being compelled to present something you know versus mm -hmm. uh, being compelled to uh, do something. By that, I mean, uh, it's my understanding that you cannot be compelled, at least in the United States, to uh, present your password or in this case, a passcode. I think it's a Fifth Amendment thing, perjuring yourself or um, um, incriminating yourself. But regardless of the reasons, that's my understanding. It's something you know, it's something in your mind, it's some, you know, something you remember and that you're not being forced to turn over. On the other hand, um, apparently your fingerprint and your face are public record in that sense, and they can in fact um, physically require that you uh, use your fingerprint or your face to unlock your device. So if you are ever in a situation where that might be something important to you, then yeah, there's a lot of things you should probably be doing differently uh, and not necessarily using face ID or fingerprint ID might be one of them. I did um, uh, another aspect of this or a way around this. Um, and this might be a good topic for a future episode because I re was recently researching smart locks, as in like physical door locks, um, which is a whole, you know, interesting topic. Uh, and one of the things that's there for safety is some of them have this thing where you could enter in random numbers 
as long as your actual unlock code is in there somewhere. Ooh. And the idea is to fool somebody. So like, I, I didn't really look into the different ways you could do it, but the, they would have say, the first four digits don't matter. The second four digits, they're the real ones. And the, and the third set of four digits don't matter either. So you go up and you enter all these digits in and it's only the middle four that count. And so somebody trying to actually, you know, look at your code is going to be hit with all these digits, whereas you only really needed to remember four. And I think there are variations on that for different locks. And they're meant for like places where you've got a keypad somewhere very public and it's right. very hard to like hide it and all that. You can kind of just go in and like decide, oh, I'm going to enter in my, you know, birthday is the first four, doesn't matter. But then I enter in my actual four digits and then I'm going to enter in something else and they're going to, you know, be foiled by the fact that there's no way they can remember 12 digits. So anyway, it'd be interesting to see a switch for that. I would love to be able to do the same thing on my phone. Plus some of them also, if they're really smart, they have a, uh, God, what's it called? It's like a fail safe code or something. I know right. my security... My security system has it, whereas there's another code, like there's your regular code you can enter to turn off your security alarm, you know, hmm. you use when you come in. But there's a code you use that seems to turn it off, but it also calls the right. security company and says there is a major problem, sends somebody immediately. So if somebody forces you to go in, shut off your alarm, okay, I'll do it. You type in that code and they're like, all right, and they proceed to rob you. You could sit there and say, well, police are on the way because I yes. entered the code in. It's interesting to do that on your phone where you could actually enter in a code. I mean, it wouldn't be the same situation somebody else you know, would see. But if you enter in a code and then it actually locks down your phone. Uh, or or like, wipes it. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. The, say either locks it down where you, they can't get access unless you have to reset something on another device completely. Or it it just totally wipes it. That would be interesting. Um Maybe even a, a, an alert kind of thing or a delay uh, would be interesting to have some sort of weird delay, you know, whereas you enter a code in and that'll work as long as you use face ID, touch ID, or the actual code in the next hour or right. 15 minutes or 10 minutes. If you don't, it'll lock it down. I don't know. Lots of cool things that you could, you could probably do. And I'm sure Apple won't do any of these. They'll just do something really simple and obvious with a little switch that makes it a little <laughs> bit safer. Yep, yep. And they, anyway. are good at, they are good at doing that kind of stuff, right? They pull they pull those kind of, of techniques out of the air. And it's, it, yeah. Anyway, um, on to Ain't It Cool. So, Last week, you mentioned um, a book called Avogadro Corp. The singularity is closer than it appears. Yes. I picked it up, and I'm about two-thirds of the way through. Cool. Uh, you didn't tell me it was the first book of a four-book quadrilogy. It is. It, probably, it wasn't when I read it. <laughs> <laughs> I read it. You got to read these books early, or else you get sucked into the whole Well, thing. damn it, I'm sucked in. Anyway, um, so it's, a, it's an interesting book. I'm enjoying it. Um, what's uh, – there's – how do I want to put it? There's only a couple of places where I've had to suspend my disbelief beyond a reasonable point. Um, there are just a couple of random things that have happened that, um, okay, you know, that's a little over the line, but um, the rest of it is actually pretty interesting. However, uh, that's not my ain't it cool for this week. What this reminded me of, uh, like I was a third of the way through the book and I was thinking, gosh, this is a lot like Colossus, the Forbin Project. 
Now, Colossus, the Forbin Project was a movie uh, released in 1970. So it's a big Cold War era uh, scenario. And of course, they're talking mainframes, <laughs> not PCs. Yeah. Um, but the whole idea is it's another, um, you know, computer becomes self-aware um, and essentially um, extends its reach beyond our grasp and ends up um, just doing some things that you don't want to see happen. But the parallels between that and this book really struck me. Uh, uh, many of the same kinds of things were happening. And I just thought it was interesting. Now, the the good news is that it's the, the movie's actually, the movie stands the test of time. It actually is still mm, a very yeah. interesting story. Um, it's been a while since I've seen it, but um, it's it's still enjoyable for a very interesting definition of enjoyable because it is not a feel-good movie. It is not a no. movie at the end of which you say, they pulled it out of the fire. Spoiler alert, they don't. But um, it's still an interesting story. Now, the bad news is that I did some looking, and I actually can't find it online anywhere right now. Um, I think uh, you probably would have to purchase a copy, um, you know, DVD, yeah. Blu-ray, Blu whatever. But um, it's one of my... Uh, uh, seminal technology movies. Uh, if, to me, it's up there with 2001 A Space Odyssey in terms of having defined or really stoked the fire of um, getting interested in computing and technology. What I realized about um, Colossus, um, I tell the story that I, I had never touched a computer until I was in my sophomore year at the University of Washington. So I was, you know, 18 or something like that. Uh, before I touched one and before that light bulb went off and I said, you know what, this is what I want to do. Um, but I had seen Colossus multiple years earlier than that. Um, and it has struck me even then. So anyway, Colossus, the Forbin project, if you can find it somewhere, watch it. It's a great movie. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a theme that I think probably plays out in a lot of sci-fi. Uh, but the Avogadro one right now is very timely as well. Yep, I believe the way it is a hard movie to find, and I think the way I watched it when you recommended it to me a few years ago, mm -hmm. is I found my local public library. Well, there you go. Their online service. Like I didn't have to go anywhere. I just logged in, and they had movies online that you could watch. Mm -hmm. And that's how I watched it. Was in my web browser, in you know from my local from Denver Public Library so it might cool. be one place to look in because there's probably some sort of system that they all subscribe to right uh, anyway and I don't know if it's still there or not but yeah that's uh it's a good movie that is way ahead of its time I mean it was way you know just to think it it, it the movie war games is kind of a little derivative of it which I've but, never seen by the way I have to admit I've um, never seen war games well, there, there you have your assignment for next time. Um, it's one of my, no, I love war games. It's one of, you know, it's, 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 it's dated as well. But right. I think if you're going to put together a, like a, a series of movies on artificial intelligence, war games is a, definitely there. In, Interesting. It, it probably Interesting. Colossus is, is there. Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Of course. It's got to be there. Uh, war games definitely got to be there and then you know as you get closer closer now you get more crowded with lots and lots of things right. uh, west world that's another one from the 70s uh <laughs> that <laughs> has to go in there because definitely artificial intelligence uh right. but yeah so 
my ain't it cool is very different than that uh it is a, a movie i saw it's from 2010 and it's a horror movie called tucker and dale versus evil i don't know how i missed this when it originally came out but it I, i'll i'll set it up for you and then you you'll run off and watch it uh it starts off like a regular teen slasher movie bunch of very pretty kids head off camping into the wilderness right just with a lot of beer and party attitude and you know nothing you know something bad's going to happen to them and they stop just before going off to the wilderness at a last chance gas station and standing there are two scary looking hillbillies that scare them and the teens run off now the whole point of view of the movie changes to the hillbillies and the rest of the movie is pretty much about them which makes it very different and it's a comedy but a very dark comedy interesting yes and it's a, the comedy is more three stooges abna costello style comedy which is unexpected right but the horror kind of darkness to it is very modern and 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 strange it's a, it's a very non-formula movie well, I'm looking. I'm looking at the uh, uh, the write up that you'll include in the in the show notes, the Wikipedia yeah. write up of all places. Yeah. Um, and I didn't realize that Alan Tudyk was in it. Alan Tudyk is one um, of the stars, and he's, he's and, yeah. For those that don't know, Alan Tudyk is um, Wash from Firefly, yeah. and he is also um, uh, Resident Alien, the Alien and Resident Alien, which is also another good ep a good. Uh, episodical that is i think between seasons right now it should come back yeah and uh, and you know one of the things about uh resident alien is when you watch that mm -hmm. you kind of look and say boy no one else could play that role except alan Tudyk. like <laughs> that's, that's true. It's made it's made for him this movie the role he plays in that uh i forget if he's tucker or dale i think he's tucker um it's also the same thing it's like oh that role's made for him he, there's a reason he's playing that role because it's you know he has to go do all his thing with that role so yeah it, it's fun it's a fun movie that's different than your typical slasher movie cool cool yep. i'm gonna have to add that to my list of things to see so i've got war games um which i just noticed is not on any streaming service right now what? and what? well you can rent it um yeah okay. and if you've got a if you've got a subscription to amc plus you can rent you can watch it there but i don't have that one uh that's the one oh. streaming service that i don't have um so war games and uh tucker and dale versus evil okay you, you wow. gotta watch yeah you gotta watch matthew broderick break into the department of defense using his apple II and a and a audio coupler modem yes yes so I'm, I'm aware of the style you know the 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 uh the yeah. anachronisms currently in the movie um <laughs> but i've just i've just never seen it oh, yeah. um so blatant self-promotion this is how we pay what little bills we have for this little enterprise yeah. uh i'm going to point everybody at how do i keep my email address when i change my isp it's askleo.com slash 1860 this is a problem that uh people eventually run into hopefully they only run into it once you move somewhere or the internet comes to some place, mm -hmm. you sign up with your ISP and they give you an email address that is off of their domain. So for example, one of my original email addresses here um, was an at verizon.net email address because they were my ISP. 
if I were to move to a location that wasn't served by Verizon, then I had a problem because I was no longer their customer and that email address would eventually stop working. So this article talks a little bit about um, why that happens. Um, it, sometimes you can get lucky, uh, but what you should really be doing ahead of time uh, to avoid getting yourself in this situation to begin with. So if you're someone that you know is moving or planning on moving, uh, and leaving potentially the service area of your current ISP, and you've got an ISP-based email address, you may want to have a look at that one. Yep. Uh, and I'll just link to the uh, thing I was just talking about, the how to prevent the watch and grab iPhone theft, which I basically told you all that's going to be in the video, but it's like a, a short video just giving you the, the, uh, the basic idea of the problem and how to protect yourself. Cool. Cool. Very cool. I, actually, I will have to take a look at it and see how much of it applies to the Android world and uh, potentially steal a few ideas. Oh, definitely. Yep. Um, so uh, it is now the end of February. Uh, yeah. As it turns out, Gary and I have a couple of random things happening at random mm -hmm. times over the course of the next few weeks. So we've decided that we're going to go on spring break. And it's, <laughs> I, I wish it were that, that yeah, kind of spring know, break, right? Um, although, to be fair, we've both got good things happening. So it's yep. not like it's, it's, it's something bad. Um, so uh, we're not going to specify a specific date, but I will say that we will be back towards the end of March. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to be away for a few weeks. Uh, but as always, we'll look forward to, uh, to starting back up again and seeing, uh, you know, what the, uh, let's see, what will chat GPT have done in the next three weeks. Oh yeah, everything. We, we may not have to come back. Chat well, well, that's true. Just do the show for us. Everything would have changed. It's like um, podcasting. What are you talking about? Nobody does that. What will Elon have done in the next yeah. three weeks? Um, and let's see, what's another good topic? Um, I don't know. We might know. be all living on Mars. In three we weeks. might we be, know. you never know. <laughs> Uh, three weeks is such a long time sometimes it when it comes to when technology. it comes to not just technology, but politics and the world in general. <laughs> anyway, the show notes for this week are out at tehpodcast.com slash teh186. If you've got a comment or a question for us, leave it there on the show notes page. We absolutely see them. And of course, we will be seeing them while we're uh, not necessarily recording over the next couple of weeks, but we'll definitely interact with you there if you so choose. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we will see you here again in a few weeks. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.